0: We are in our um, May teaching series um, set aside by our church to address uh, doctrines of the faith that um, we routinely get questions about. Um, this this year, we're looking at the doctrine of um, predestination and Calvinism, soteriology. First week, um, I did a historical. Um, contextual um, study. I asked the question, why is it so hard for us to believe in predestination? And then um, kind of went through some contextual and cultural reasons why I, I feel like that is. Um, the second week, we approached it from more of a systematic approach, um, where we looked at the classic five points of Calvinism and kind of unpacked those. Last week, we approached it from more of a biblical perspective, um, where we looked at Romans 9. And um, probably probably the most famous passage that deals with God's sovereign election. And I told you this week I'm going to try to answer questions that I typically get, and um, hopefully, um, charitably deal with uh, the other side. Um, that what, what like if if we were to have an Armenian theolo- theologian here um, with us? What w- what would they say? And um, and how would I engage that? So I guess you could say this week we're, we're going to deal with objections and questions. Um, toward that end, um, I want to begin by doing a little uh, little bit of repenting before you. My job is to um, be the chief repenter of our congregation. And um, I got, got some helpful feedback this week. Um, when, when we did the baptism thing, I went out of my way to try to be charitable ...and gracious to the other side um, of the argument. And the reason I did that is because um, there we do have so many um, people who come from the Baptist tradition. Um, we have so much in common with a lot of uh, Baptists. Um, we, we, we unite with them together in so many ways and all that stuff. And I just wanted to be real gracious with it. I never wanted this to turn into a polemic thing. And... Um, and, I, and I've, I, my intention going into this was to do the same with the with with Armenian theology, and I, I think I have been uh, careless with my words and um, failed to be charitable, um, not not overly insulting or anything like that. But I just want to—I really want to do this in such a way that um, certainly I don't set up straw men that are easy for me to to um, to explain away. But um, but also just just in grace and humility, recognize the the. The validity of um, of of that other side, and um, particularly last week, we were talking about. Um, I think I mischaracterized it as only a philosophical um, issue, and and I, 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 basically to say Armenian theology kind of is born only out of philosophy, um, not exegetical work, and that's just unfair. There 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 are many great um, Armenian theologians who. Who have done a lot of good work um, exegetically, and I'm going to engage some of that this morning. Um, I, I do believe the reason I say that is I do believe the um, that 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 it is um, it is it is influenced by a Western um, philosophy, um, but but I, I just don't want to mischaracterize that. Um, my son Holt is named after um, uh, get this as a Calvinist. Uh, as a Calvinist PCA guy, my son Holt is named after an ordained Methodist female minister. How about that? My uh, grandmother, Halcyon Holt, um, is the godliest person I've ever known. And, um, and the reason I'm here is because she prayed me into the kingdom. And, uh, and just, I remember being in her home and watching the way she did life. And, um, and that, that's really where I see, see the seeds of my, my faith. Um, so, so I, I, I named my child after an Armenian. So there you go. Um, she's turning over in her grave as we speak. Um, okay. Here's how I want to come at this. Okay. Let me make sure I know where I'm coming at this. Yes, I want to. I want to work with scripture. Um, I want to. i kind of. I want to look at the verses that that I think an Armenian would say. And hopefully, be faithful to 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 their to what they would say. I want to look at. Let's put it this way. I want to look at problematic texts for Calvinism. And Many of you have sent some of those to me. Problematic passages to um, the way we view salvation. Um, I want to look at the fairness argument. I'm trying. What I try to do is lump all of the stuff that I've received into one uh, lecture. Then I want to look at the fairness argument, which is a big one for a lot of people. It seemed like. Um, is God just? Is He unjust? Now, I'm not going to deal much of that because so much of Romans 9 dealt with that last week. And then I'm going to deal with the last part. Is I'm just going to deal with kind of some of the more philosophical arguments against this. Um, some of the questions that inevitably come up out of a response to this, like if God is sovereign, why missions, and, and so forth. Um, okay, so let's just start with the Bible. Let's start with passages. Um, I, you know, really, again, I'm trying to condense everything. So I I am... um, Here are the three things that I get again and again and again. The first is all of the world talk in the New Testament. Um, We're going to talk about that. The world passages. For God so loved the world, so forth. Um, The second are all of the invitation passages of Scripture... ...which are everywhere and are very sincere. Come to me. I stand at the door and knock if anyone opens, so forth. So the invitation nature of Scripture... And then the third, I'm going to deal with what would be their Romans 9. They have have their own Romans 9. Um, It's 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4, and 2 Peter 3, 8 through 9. They basically say the same thing. So I'm going to look at their passages, kind of like their bedrock, watershed passage. How can you believe this if these verses are true? Okay? So let's start with the verses. Let's start with Scripture. And I don't know how much I'm going to be able to get through, but we're going to have time next week if I don't deal with all of this. Um, in our final week, I've, I've let myself have time. Okay, so let's start with the world passages. Particularly, this comes from John, the Apostle John. Um, John one twenty nine. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Um, of course, John three sixteen. God so loved the world that He gave His Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Um, John 4.42, John 6.33, John 6.51, John 12.47, 1 John 4.14. John is big on the world. Um, let, me, let me just say this. Usually in Greek an advantage that the language, the Greek, language the Greek language has over the English language. And, and, I, and, and I, I think this is honestly why God inspired the New Testament in Greek um, at the time he did, um, is because of incredibly nuanced language. And so whereas we have one word for love, they have three words for love that communicate different aspects of love. And so usually the Greek helps us to get more specific. Except... <laughs> ...with the word cosmos, which is the world. Um, Cosmos is used... I'm just going to go through just how is the world used in the New Testament. Um, At times it means the universe as a whole. Everything, all of existence, like in Acts 17, 24. At times it's used just of the earth. um, John 13, 1, Ephesians 1, 4. Um, At times it's used as the systems of the world... The world system, the fallen world systems, like John twelve thirty one. Um, at times, it's used um, of the whole human race, like Romans three nineteen. So it's all people, everybody. Cosmos is used of humanity minus believers, minus believers. So the ungodly, the unconverted. John fifteen eighteen, Romans three six. If the world hates you, don't worry. They hated me. So as unbelievers, those persecuting. And sometimes cosmos is used as believers only. Now that gets tricky. Sometimes when he talks about the world, he's talking about unbelievers. Sometimes when he's talking about the world, he's talking about all the believers. Sometimes cosmos is used of Gentiles in contrast from the Jews. So the Jew-Gentile contrast. This is why it's hard. It's because you can't approach... ...a verse that talks about God's love for the world... ...and and say it has to mean... ...that he has a salvific love... ...for every single person. That is bad exegesis. That is a bad use of the word world. In John... ...here, here, especially when you understand... ...so let me give you my answer to all the world talk. The main issue of the New Testament... ...the main dilemma... ...the main struggle... ...the thing that they could not get their minds around is that the gospel is for the Gentiles. There is a Jew-Gentile tension that you cannot miss. So much of the gospel... I mean, so much of Paul's writings is written to, to combat that problem. Because Christianity was born out of Judaism as a Jewish revival. That's what Pentecost is. says Pentecost Sunday. Thousands of Jews believed upon Jesus as the Messiah. It began as a Jewish revival. And then all of a sudden, the the, the Jew that hates... Christianity most is converted, and then God, in, a, in an instance of just laughable, divine, omnipotent humor, says, I'll take the Jew who hates me the most, and he's going to reach the Gentiles. The Jew who hates the Gentiles the most. And Paul is converted, and he goes, and all of a sudden, you've got all these Gentiles believing upon the Messiah, and so you've got a church of Jew-Gentile, and they don't know what to do with that. And so they're constantly having to reinforce, Jesus did not come for Israel Jesus came for the world. Jesus came for the nations. And so, so much of the world talk in the New Testament is just reinforcing that His gospel and His mission is global in expanse. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world, the entire world, all nations might be saved. Why? Because God loves the world, not just you, Israel. In fact, you, Israel, were made to reach the world. And so the world talk there is not just every individual sins. It can't be that. It cannot be every individual person. When John says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You are at that point either a universalist. Or, meaning every sin of the world is taken away. Or you have to say, okay, what John is saying there is that Jesus has come to take away the sins of the nations, that every tongue, tribe, and nation will be saved through this man. And I think over and over again that's faithful to the Jewish-Gentile um, tension. So I think the word world, which is used in so many complex ways in the New Testament, is speaking to a broad, broadly scoped nations, missions, Um, ...thrust of the gospel and of the kingdom... ...reemphasizing to Jews again and again... ...that He has come for the world, not just them. What do we do with all the invitation passages? Whosoever will believe... Whosoever will come, come to me, all you who are burdened. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. The Bible ends with an invitation in Revelation 22. The Spirit and the bride say, Come, let the one who hears say, Come, let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires take water with take the water of life without price. It seems, it doesn't seem, it is true that the um, New Testament, that the Scriptures as a whole, are an invitation. They are an invitation to come and receive and believe upon Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus is a very biblical hymn. Even though the the crazy Calvinists changed that. They ruin that hymn. The, there's a movement of you know, redoing the hymns. And usually they just leave the lyrics alone and just do new music. And for that one, they said, um, I never wanted to follow Jesus. <laughs> like, come on, guys. You're allowed to say, I have decided to follow Jesus. I decided to follow Jesus. You decide to follow Jesus if you're Jesus. We come. We believe. And the, and the Bible again and again and again says, Come, believe, receive. All of that language is all over the Bible. And as a Calvinist, I would say amen. I see no problem with that whatsoever. Many are called, few are chosen. But I see no problem with many being called. The question we need to ask is, who does come? Who desires? Who believes? All I want to do is take it one more step down. This is why Acts is so helpful. ...because we see how the apostles interpret all of the revival going on. We see how the apostles viewed what was happening in Acts. Acts 16, 13 through 14. The, the, in other words, the, gospel went out, the The apostles went out in Acts preaching the gospel... ...and telling everybody to believe, repent and believe the gospel, right? On the Sabbath, uh, Acts 16, 13 through 14. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river... ...where we expected to find a place of prayer... We sat down and began to speak to the woman who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. Don't, don't, that, they don't use that like us. That's a Gentile who um, is a God-fearing Gentile. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. That's how it describes Lydia's conversion. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message, and she believes. And by the way, her whole household is baptized, just to say. Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, he preaches the sermon to the Gentiles. They began worshiping and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. I believe... Everything that an Arminian would say about conversion, except I just think the scriptures take it down one more level. If someone chooses to heed the invitation of the gospel, it is because God did it. And that's my testimony. And I think that everybody, when they share their testimony, says the same. And Arminians, again, to be charitable and fair... ...Arminians would say that there's this thing called prevenient grace... ...which means that God, yes, they, we are dead in sin... ...we are born in original sin, they, they, um, total depravity, all that stuff... ...and that there's this thing called prevenient grace... ...that, that kind of um, warms our heart to a point to where we can choose... ...this crass, putting it crassly, but just trying to get in terms... ...that you understand, gets us, gets us to the point where we can choose... But I believe it is death to life all the way. I believe on Sunday morning when I preach, this morning is a heavy, um, confrontational, come to Jesus sermon. He he wants you, will you you submit to Him? And I'm going to preach that like an Arminian. And then I'm going to believe that if anybody here this day submits to Him, Jesus did that. The Spirit did that. He gave you eyes to see Him as beautiful. He, he gave you ears to hear the gospel is true. He gave you a heart. He took out your heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh. That faith is the first cry of a regenerate heart. Faith does not initiate regeneration. Faith is the overflow of regeneration. Did I say that right? I don't know, but you get what I'm saying. I preach, and the Bible preaches, with the urgency of an Arminian and the confidence of a Calvinist. Now, I wish that Calvinists had the urgency that the Arminians have. If I asked, um, this is not true now, but if I asked, if you're 40 and over, and I asked you, who led you to Jesus, I bet it was an Arminian. And then you kind of went down the discipleship road to where you are. Um, now, that's changed. The millennials, all that stuff. Most of the people who are, who, you know, because of the young, restless, and reform movement, that's changed. But there is an urgency that is born out of out of Armenian theology, and I love the urgency. Um, I just, I just want to hold to the confidence that God goes before me to make the dead come alive. So that's why I would say the invitations passages. So the world past the invitation passages. All right, now let me deal with um, the uh, the two. What I would say uh, bedrock. They're saying the same thing in different ways, but these are the Roman nine of the Armenian theology. First Timothy two one through four. If you want to turn there, and the other 2 Peter three eight through nine. You don't have to turn there, but if you want to, First Peter, First Timothy two one through four. First of all, then I urge that supplication, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving. The reason why I'm starting here is because it really informs the verses. That prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of our God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. Okay, well then we're wrong, (laughs) right? Because, I mean, that's so clear. Um, Let me read the other one. And then, and then we'll, and then I'll, I'll, I'll engage them. Second, Second Peter 3, 8, 8, eight through nine, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Okay. Um, what would I say to that? Let me, let me look at it contextually and then, and then in bigger picture. Uh, the, the first Timothy passage again, all when we 're talking about all men, all men to be saved, all men to come to the knowledge of truth in the same way of the world talk, um, all there is it, it cannot be exclusively every single person um, for instance. Um, it, it, ...the same word there is used when Timothy likewise says... ...Timothy uses that word. The word all is used a ton and it's used in different ways. Like Timothy uses the word in a passage you know... Um, that, ...that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And the, interpre- and, the, and, and, the, uh, and the interpreters rightly there say all kinds of evil. That the love of money is not the root of literally every single evil... ...but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And it's the same, it's the same word here... Um, Here's what's going on. Timothy, Paul's saying, I want you guys to be praying for all people. He says, I want you to pray for all people. Kings and those who are in high positions. Now, their response is, you want us to pray for pagan kings? This is new to them, okay? You want us to be praying for for Caesar? What? And he says, yes. Because God loves all people. And he has a desire to see all people, even the pagan Roman Empire, to be saved. Likewise, in 2 Peter 3, he's saying, don't overlook this fact. They're, they're worried about, where, where's the parousia? Where's the return of Jesus? Why has he not come back yet? And he says, um, he says I don't want you to overlook this one thing that, that, that a day... Um, to ...that um, one day is a thousand years or a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to return. He's not slow to fulfill his, fulfill his promises. He is patient towards you. And here's why He hasn't returned yet. Here's why He's patient. He wants everyone to be saved. In other words, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached... ...as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. That the gospel is to go forth to the world... God so loved the world that the gospel will go forth and all the nations will hear it, all mankind will hear it, and then the end will come, is is what Jesus says. He's not talking about, I'm not coming back until every single person believes. So again, I'm just saying, contextually what we're saying here is, the all there, like the word world, it cannot be interpreted strictly with this literalistic every single person. Here's, Here's the real problem. In both, let's, let's suppose that all means every single individual person. That I'll, I'll read it that way. Um, this is good and pleasing in the sight of God who desires every single person to be saved and, not, and, and to come to the knowledge of truth. Uh, the second Peter passage. Um, he does not wish that any should perish, and not one single person perish, but that every single person should reach repentance. Um, here is the real problem with interpreting it that way, and you know it, Um, not every single person is saved. Some do perish. That's the fearful reality. Some do perish. He doesn't want every single person to perish. Well, some people perish. He wants every single person to repent. Well, some people don't repent. So if God wants this, and I think we can all agree that God gets what He wants, does He not? God gets what He wants. He certainly has the power to have what He wants. If God wants this... If, if, if we interpret the passage this way, then it has to go down this line of thinking. If God wants this, then He w- must want something more. Because it's not happening. If He wants this, if we interpret the passage that way, if He wants this, then He w- must want something more. Okay, let's, let's, let's entertain that. The Armenian would say... He wants to preserve the absolute freedom of man. He wants every man to be saved, but he has to preserve their freedom to choose. Okay? The Calvinist would say he wants every man to be saved, but he wants his own glory more. Something has, if it's saying, if it's saying that he wants every single person not to perish and to be saved, then and it's not happening, then clearly God has higher purposes. And, and what you'd have to say there is that the Wesleyan view would be... Yeah, his higher purpose is that he wants freely to be chosen. He wants, he wants us to freely choose him. So he's not going to intervene. He's not going to overcome our will, even if it means hell for us. He will not triumph over my stubborn heart. He needs to let me make that choice. That's his priority. And the Calvinist would say, he wants all men to be saved but He has a higher purpose, His own glory. And that's what we looked at last week in Romans 9. And so I ask you, when you look at, when you look at the Scriptures, which, which do you see as the heart of God? Which do you see His passion, His unending passion? That man be free? That man gets to choose? Or his own renown, his own glory, his own fame? I would say to God... If you want me to be saved, but you, would, you want me to freely choose more, please, I'll give up my autonomy. Take away it. I, I, please, come. Or, or me, I'm speaking for, for a loved one that I'm praying for. And we're going to get into, well, wait, how do Calvinists pray? For a loved one that I'm praying for. And I'm crying out to the heavens, save them. Everybody prays like a Calvinist. Save them, God. Please, save them. You know, they accuse us of being unloving. And I would just say, boy, how unloving is it for God to say, I want to, but I can't. Because I refuse. I refuse to get involved and overcome their will. We both have a problem here if the text says this. If the text says every single person... He wants to be saved. We both have a problem. I don't think it's saying that, by the way. I, I think exegetically what it's saying is the world, all people, all nations. But let's just say it does. Then what you have to then say is that he prioritizes the autonomy of man more than his desire for man to be saved. Or we would have to say he prioritizes his glory and his renown more than the priority of all people to be saved. And I think Romans 9 clearly teaches the opposite. So that's what I would say to those texts. Um... And they are, they are kind of the bedrock texts of Arminianism. Okay, um, let's move to the fairness argument. Um, so that's, that's scripture, and I, listen, I, know I could not go through every scripture, but I try to lump them all into categories. I think every verse that you would send me fits into one of those categories. And then I did a separate category for the, for the two, he wants all men to be saved. Okay, the fairness argument, and, and this is just, of course, th- this is one we deal, dealt with a lot, so I'm not going to deal with it much here. It's the justice of God. Um, is, 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 to say, we naturally want to say to the doctrine of predestination... ...exactly what Paul says. Is, is, is there injustice in God? Why does he find fault? If God has ordained all things to come to pass... ...if God has ordained the salvation... ...if God has ordained the elect... ...that's not fair... ...is just a crass way to put it. I would say... Go back and listen to last week... ...to what I say to that... ...because Paul picks that up in Romans 9. Um, so go back and listen to that if you weren't here. Um, but, but I'd highlight one sentence I said in that talk... ...that, that gives per- perspective to this. Some of fallen humanity receive mercy at the hands of God. Some of fallen humanity receive justice at the hands of God. Nobody receives injustice at the hands of God. If your view is that we have a mass of neutral humanity and the grand puppet master saying, you hear, you hear, you hear, you hear, you hear. That is not biblical theology at all. What you have instead is hell-bound haters of God, cursing God, shaking their fists in God's face, saying, leave me alone. I don't want you. That's what we're talking about in this morning my sermon. I don't want you. I want to be my own authority, my own God. I don't want to submit to you. Some people, God says very well, And hands them over to their desire. Some people, God gives them what they don't want, which is his mercy. Nobody gets injustice at the hands of God. That's not necessarily true. One time, one time somebody got what they did not deserve. Jesus, his only son. The one time God gave somebody what they did not deserve, it was himself. And this is this is how the scriptures speak of Jesus'. Acts four, twenty seven through twenty-eight. For truly in this city in this city, they're praying to God, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God chose, He ordained down to the details of Herod and Pilate the execution of the only one who did not deserve to be executed. And yet we say, there, where is justice when He gives what man deserves? Matthew 26, 20 through 24. When it was evening, He reclined at the table with the twelve, and as they were eating, He said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray Me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of Him. He will die, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Do you know what he's saying to Pilate there or to, to Judas there? It has to go down this way, but woe to you for doing it. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. God ordained every last detail of the crucifixion of Jesus, and every single person from Judas to Pilate was responsible for their deeds. Now, if God can be sovereign over the death of His Son and still be just, then I think He can hand over some to what they want, which is the fearful destiny of being their own God and be just. There is no injustice in God. God gives some mercy. He gives some justice. He gives no one except His Son injustice. That's what I would say to the fairness thing. A couple philosophical things that I'll go through. Um, ...quickly, um, and these are just the, the common ones. Um, I'm lumping them all together, okay? So, if predestination, then why evangelize? If God has if God chosen, then why missions? Aren't they just going to be saved? If God is chosen, then why do we even pray? Um, if God has chosen, then how can I have security? Because how do I know if I'm the elect and all that stuff? All of that, and this goes back to my first talk... ...all of that is born out of a Western enlightened world view... ...that has to have things neat and logically clean. That says, takes it to an unintended ends... ...as if the providence and decrees of God... ...can be put into a lab and tested. And you would say, logically to, to my enlightened mind... ...it means if God has chosen... ...then it's going to come to pass... ...therefore there's no need to do whatever it takes... ...to get that to come to pass. That's, that's, that's not how the Bible thinks... The Bible teaches a robust doctrine of God's providence that is not despite our choices, but through our choices. He uses our free choices to do exactly what He wants to do. God does not just ordain ends, He ordains the means. Acts 27 is a fascinating verse. They're they're in the storm, they're in the storm, and they're freaking out that they're going to be shipwrecked. And and, and they come to Paul, an angel comes to Paul, um, and, and Paul says... The angel came to me um, and he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. So basically, the angel comes and says, Nobody's going to die, Paul. Nobody's going to die. You're not going to die. Nobody in the boat is going to die. And he comes and he says, Good news, guys. Nobody's going to die. We're all going to live. And then right after that, some people start freaking out anyway. And they get in lifeboats and they're about to get out. And Paul says, stop that or we're all going to die. What? You just said we're, nobody's going to die. And then he says, hey, you guys are starving. You need to eat something or you're going to die. What? You just told us we're not going to die. But Paul doesn't think that way. He, he sees this view and, and the Bible doesn't think that way. Westerners think that way. He sees this view of God is completely sovereign. He knows how this is going to act out. And we need to live out according to his providence. Evangelism is the harvesting of what God has decreed. It's like the whole, if, if God has elect, then why evangelize? It's like me saying, if you, were going, if you were going fishing, I told you you were going to go catch some fish. Well, why would I go fishing then? What's the point? They're going to get caught anyway. What? Go fishing and have fun catching your fish. It doesn't negate choices. It doesn't negate means. It empowers them, it hallows them, it infuses them with confidence. This is the see, I could go through every single one of those. Why evangelism? Why pray? Why secure? All that. I could go through all of them and flip them on the say, head and say it's the only hope of evangelism. John Newton said, if I was not a Calvinist, I think I should have no more hope of success in preaching to men than to horses or cows. If I'm not a Calvinist and God is not here to raise the dead, I'm going home. Because I can't convince dead men to come alive. It's like preaching to a cow. But, if God has elect in this city then let's give our life to bringing... ...fill up the role of thine elect, the hymn says. Let's give our life to harvesting the decrees of God. Let's go after it. It is our only hope in evangelism. Same with prayer. Listen, it does do something to evangelism. Let's put it this way. It does do something to evangelism. It changes the nature of it. Evangelism is no longer what the Second Great Awakening was... ...which is all technique... All persuasive ability, all, the, all of what can we do to persuade people, put them in hot tents and, and play play uh, stirring music and do impassioned calls. That's what the Second Great Awakening did. They had techniques. They made their seats hot so they could get up out of the seat. That's the Second Great Awakening. And the First Great Awakening was Jonathan Edwards preaching sinners in the hands of anger. God preaching like this because he didn't believe in emotion to stir the souls, which is an extreme overkill, right? The other direction of Calvinism, which is wrong. But he would do that, and then the masses would fall down in repentance because the Spirit was anointing at that time. But where was I going with this? So Second Great Awakening, oh, it changes the nature of evangelism. Evangelism now turns into a posture of... Reliance and prayer. Like, evangel- the, the, the number one thing in evangelism, if this is true, is not to be really persuasive and have all the answers, it's to pray a lot, right? It's to be dependent upon the Spirit of God, it's to walk humbly and trust that He goes before you and will do it. It changes the posture of evangelism to one that is wholly dependent upon God in prayer. and prayer. And I would say, prayer. It, it, people say, why pray? Because God has ordained that prayer is the means to which the dead come alive. Prayer and word. He has ordained that. And he has promised... And and nobody Everybody prays like a Calvinist. They don't say... I don't know how you would pray otherwise. You say, God, save them. Make them come alive. And so we pray because prayer is effectual. It works. If I didn't believe that God could intervene in the lives of people sovereignly triumphing over their wills and bringing them to themselves, then I would say, why pray? Why pray if God doesn't do that? But because I'm a Calvinist, because I believe God is at work, and because I believe He doesn't just ordain the ends, but the means, I, I should, but I don't. Sorry, my confession, sadly. I'll get better. But I should be laboring in prayer. That's, that's why a Calvinist that doesn't pray is silly. I should be laboring in prayer. So somebody came up to me and said, very burdened. Um, very burdened and said, um, I'm praying for this person. I love this person. I've been praying for so long. And, and these talks are scaring me because what, what if she's not elect? And I said, That's just, that is not the way to look at this. Here's how to look at this. Why do you think God has you praying for her? Why do you think he has given you a heart for her? Why do you think he has led you to pray all of these years? Why do you think you're laboring there and you feel called to her? Why do you think he has stirred your heart towards this person? I'll tell you why he's after her. He's after her. And he's going to answer your prayers and save her. That's how we think. That's how we think. We don't ignore the means. The means are empowered And because we know the end is sure, we can be confident in the means. So all I'm trying to say is this. All the philosophical arguments that arise, if this, then why this, if this, then why this, I can completely flip them on the head and say, okay, if God is not sovereign, then why evangelize? evangelize? Because he's not going to get involved with dead people and raise them. If God is not sovereign, then why pray? Because he can't get involved in in, in the affairs of man and cause them to love him. So we can flip, we can play that game all day long. The reality of it is, is God ordains the ends, And he ordains the means. He's working in your life. You can trust that he's working in your life. And you can go out empowered towards these holy and high callings. God is sovereign. And he works through the free choices of man. And that's where we end in mystery. All right, I need to close, but I'm going to close here. Um, Keller famously said this. When it's all said and done, when it's all said and done, we both have our problems. You could take the system of Arminianism, because it's systematic theology, um, because it's systematic theology, um, it's, it has its limits, okay? Because you can't systematize the, everything of God. But both systems have their problems. So you could take Arminianism and you could look at the, and, and, and see, and you could take Calvinism and you can look at our problems. And sure we have problems, and, and many of you have emailed those to me and all that stuff. Some of them I can answer, and some of them I can't answer. But here's what Keller always loves to say. I just like my problems a lot more than their problems. <laughs> and here's why he says this. Because to me... To me... What I want to be true... And what I think the scriptures proclaim... Over and over and over again... Is total free grace. And for sal- you know, You know what Calvinism is called? The doctrines of grace. For salvation... To truly, from top to bottom, be grace. For it to be a hundred percent God and zero percent you. It has to be this way. Because if it is the one thing you contributed, the one thing you did do, is you believed. God did everything. He got you there. He warmed your heart and all that stuff. But that last step of faith was you. You chose. That's still something you can stand on. That's still something you can look at your neighbor and said, I got it, you didn't. But Ephesians 2, I'll close with this. Ephesians 2 is is by grace you have been saved, right? That's the theme of it, by grace you have been saved. How deep is that grace? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And our many would say, that's what I do. That's how I partner in grace. And then Paul takes it off the table. And that faith, that choice is a gift of God not by works, so that nobody can boast. The only way for this to be free grace from top to bottom, all the way for me to say, truly, I had nothing to do with my salvation, is if before the foundation of the world, God foreknew me. He's decreed to have me. He moved into my life. He awakened my heart. He gave me faith. He's at work now refining me. And He will glorify me, and from beginning to end, it was all the work of God. That's free grace. It's compromised when you don't do it this way, and so I like my problems better than the other problems. All right, let me pray. Thank you for your free grace, sovereign God, that I can stand here and say, I am unworthy, but you have chosen to have mercy. Lord, I pray we would go forth. Um, I, 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 I repented for them and I repent for you, Lord. my my, um, my inexperience comes out in an um, in overly polemic um, voice and passion. So where I've done that, forgive me. Um, I get carried away is what I'm trying to say. I'm sorry. Um, and and um, I pray that we would go forth with a humble, ecumenical, charitable spirit... And also a spirit in love with the God who is sovereign over all things, including our own salvation. It is by grace that we have been saved through faith. And even that faith is not works. It is a gift of God so that nobody can boast. Boasting is off the table if what we are saying is true. And all that is left is humble worship. And so it's in that spirit now that we go to, um, to worship. To worship you, the God of grace. I pray that you will be at work to take what is proclaimed in in the pulpit this morning and use it to do what only you can do. Give us new hearts. Raise the dead. Refine us according to your ways. Thank you, we pray in your name. Amen.